0: Hello and welcome to Postcards from Heron County, a podcast that delves into some of the heritage of Ontario's West Coast. I'm your host Mandy Sinclair and since returning to the area after 20 years away I have enjoyed rediscovering the county and wanting to know more about the history of the region as I set out exploring the trails, small towns and more. So I'm inviting you to listen in as I sit down to chat with historians and community members who have a close connection to the topic in question. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge that I am recording at Faux Pop Studios in Goderidge, which is on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Neutral Peoples. I recognize the First Peoples' continued stewardship of the land and water, and that this territory was subject to the dish-with-one-spoon wampum, under which multiple nations agreed to care for the land and resources by the Great Lakes in peace. I would also like to acknowledge and recognize the Upper Canada Treaties signed in regards to Heron County, as settlers know it, which include Treaty 29 and Treaty 45 and a half. On today's episode, I'm joined in studio with Jenna McGuire to chat about the historic Saugeen-Métis community prior to and after settlement. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jenna. It's an absolute pleasure to meet you, and I'm very much looking forward to the knowledge and history you're planning to share about the historic Métis community, the fur trade that existed here on Lake Huron prior to settlers arrival, and also the trade that existed for millennia prior. Before we dive into this topic, though, I'd like to introduce you to listeners. You hold a degree in wildlife biology from the University of Guelph and a graduate certificate in science illustration from California State Monterey Bay, which I think is very interesting as you use your oral and written and visual communication skills to inspire passion, preserve knowledge, and to protect natural and cultural heritage. You spent over a decade working for Parks Canada and Tobermory in ecological research and nature interpretation. And since 2018, you've been the executive director at the Historic Saugeen Metis, where your responsibilities include Culture Keeper as you're a member of the Soggin Metis community. For listeners who may not know, the Historic Saugeen Metis, where you work, is an independent historic Metis community located in Southampton, Ontario, and represents the descendants of Metis in the historic Saugeen community prior to settlement. So thank you so much and welcome.
1: Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Thank you. The historic Sauguin Métis are a distinctive Indigenous community, having descended from unions between European traders, both French and Scottish, and First Nations women. As Lake Huron Watershed Métis, you have a unique Métis history and culture, having lived, fished, hunted, trapped, and harvested the lands and waters of the Bruce Peninsula, the Lake Huron proper shoreline, and its watersheds. This traditional Metis territory is described as covering over 275 kilometers of shoreline from Tobermory and south of Goderich and includes the counties of Bruce, Gray, and Huron, as the region is known today. The community continuously lived along the Lake Huron shoreline for almost 200 years, predating the establishment of the Canada Company. Can you tell listeners how the Metis community came to be in this area?
1: So I'm going to start really far back, uh, kind of, uh, we're talking thousands of years back, um, just to give a kind of a context of what this area was like, sort of pre-1850, pre-1830, which is often where the history books begin, because it's a really rich heritage and it paints a big picture about, you know, how everything else unfolded afterwards. So one of the things that's kind of interesting is our area was inundated or covered by a glacier around 10 to 12,000 years ago. And as that glacier receded, the land would be kind of um, opened up and there'd be actually a bit of um, meltwater kind of covering a lot of areas. And what's interesting is there's archaeological evidence very, very close to that glacial edge. Uh, Basically, as soon as that ice receded, there was people living in places like Manitoulin Island and things like that. So we know that the, you know, the occupation of indigenous people in the region is very, very, has a very deep history. Mm -hmm. And uh, as that glacier con- continued to recede and drain, uh, at one point the lake levels were actually very, very low, uh, to the point that you could have essentially walked to Manitoulin Island. Wow! And there was a, just a couple rivers in between. But mm-hmm. what is now Georgian Bay was kind of a low-down lake, and you know Lake Huron was up high, and they were joined by kind of some waterfalls because that Niagara Scarp actually continues along under the water. And there's another ridge that takes you from Amberley to Alpena, so just north of us, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of off Point Clark, uh, up to Alpena, Michigan, was actually also land. And there's archaeological evidence on that um, land ridge underneath Lake Huron of man-built or human-built structures uh, caribou herding structures, uh, hunting blinds. Uh, there's evidence from pollen that there was spruce bogs and there's even things like pieces of obsidian that they have found. And obsidian interestingly does not exist in the great lakes. So it would have had to have been traded, uh, to this area at that time. So because it's at the bottom of Lake Huron, you have a fairly sure bet it's from mm-hmm. that time period. So we're talking like 7,000 years ago, there's extensive trade from here as far as you know places like what we now call Oregon. Mm-hmm. So really extensive deep trade history of the area going back thousands and thousands of years. So when Europeans came to what we now call North America, they tapped into this pre-existing trade network and used kind of some of this already existing commerce that was taking place. And there's evidence in Ontario of trade up into uh, you know there's copper from Northern Lake Superior. Uh, there's shells from the Atlantic coast or the Gulf Coast. Uh there's there's pigments from the west, obsidian from the west. So the, the trade network was completely continent-wide. Wow. And probably even down into uh the southern central and southern American continents mm-hmm. for in terms of trade. So extremely extensive trade network and an extremely extensive already existing set of technologies and agriculture. So things like birch bark canoes or wigwas gemon, dugout canoes, elm bark canoes, those were all plied in the Great Lakes before this before contact. Um, Things like corn and wild rice, important staples, maple sugar. These are all indigenous agricultural technologies. Mm -hmm. So all of that in combined kind of made it so that this area was, you know, already had this rich trade and rich commerce going on prior to contact. Wow. And then if we kind of speed forward to the <laughs> 1500s when the Europeans first sort of came and decided they wanted to engage in trade, <laughs> uh, what they would do is initially we're kind of in the east part of what, you know, is now the St. Lawrence and all that kind of stuff. But eventually they started sending people into the interior uh, via the Ottawa and French Rivers into Lake Huron and then, you know, beyond St. Marie into like Lake Superior and then beyond that up <laughs> into, um, you know, west of, of what we now call Thunder Bay, which used to be called Fort William. Uh, so there's this kind of um, movement of people across the landscape in terms of how Europeans were, were engaging. And there was also in the 1600s, a lot of Jesuit missions that probably took place in the area, particularly around uh But there was other missions throughout Lake Huron. And so there's this early French influence in that way as well, and the impacts that it had on indigenous people. Uh, So you've got all this kind of deep history, you know, coming in, uh, coming into the area. And what started happening with these European traders living in the Great Lakes region um, is they started intermarrying with uh, First Nations women. And the, you know, the, their children didn't necessarily always identify well with First Nations or, or, you know, purely French or Scottish ancestry. They identified really well with other people of mixed heritage. And so it kind of became this um, This culture started to develop and their culture had aspects of both, you know, all the different nations that they sort of had arisen from. Uh, they also had the kind of unique situation in that they were very, very multilingual, like up to seven languages often wow. were spoken by Métis, because they, of course, had these two sides of families. Absolutely. Um, they had a you know, an incredible knowledge of the land from their mom's side of the family, but also a really incredible knowledge of commerce and European techniques and ideas. And so that meant that they were particularly well suited to be fur traders and to be voyagers and to be um, some of the people in those roles. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how that all began. So in the case of our community, our ancestors had been living and working throughout the entire Great Lakes region. I mean, when we map things, you can see people all over the lake. Even within one year, you'll see one fur trader just dots all over the lake because they're really moving far in a very short amount of time. Uh, but what happened around 1821, the Hudson's Bay Company took over what the Northwest Company had p- formerly been doing in Lake Huron. And so some of their employees that were in Fort William, Thunder Bay area, they they sent them into Lake Huron to engage in trade. Uh, but very quickly, some of these actually became independent traders because contracts aren't necessarily very long and it <laughs> might be more lucrative to do it otherwise. And so our community sort of was in Lake Huron and came to Saugeen sort of around that time. Uh, because they and they'd already had experience trading in the area, but because of the the nature of that merger, uh, they were sent into the lake basically for employment and and then
0: we've been here ever since wow a so, wow, incredible um You mentioned that your ancestors too moved around the region, so summertime in godridge uh area for gardens, winters on the sogging shores. uh you were born in Bruce County, Head specifically you mentioned to me. But live in a historic Metis house in Sogging Shores and don't really define one exact location as home. Um, where does this stem from and why is that?
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting. Nowadays, when we're trying to talk about Indigenous history, there's a lot of lines drawn on the sand and drawn on the map. Mm -hmm. So everybody's always wanting to know where the boundaries of things are. But in Indigenous culture, boundaries aren't so specific. There's kind of these spheres of occupation and seasonal rounds that took place. So people are moving, you know, all throughout landscapes. Even when you when you look at the communities today in our area, Um, we're very restricted to this part of Ontario, but people would have been moving between Michigan and here quite a Mm -hmm. bit more than we do today. They would have been moving between Manitoulin and Killarney in here quite a bit more than we do today. And so our movement, um, oddly, even though we have this mega globalization is actually less than what my ancestors would have had in the lake. Mm -hmm. Um, But for them, you know, they're following seasonal rounds, which is things like going up to the maple sugar bushes in you know, late spring, uh, coming down to places like Godrich where the climate is actually quite a bit warmer than Saugeen all winter. And it actually has a different um, assortment of plants. So it's a good mm-hmm. place to grow gardens or grow corn or a place to harvest certain medicinal plants that may not occur in the northern part of mm-hmm. the region. Uh, then in the fall, you move up to the fish camps and some of the you know, the reefs that are off uh, the peninsula and, and the islands in between here in Manitoulin. Uh, and then in the winter, you're kind of moving to the mouths of rivers, you know, to overwinter and hunt and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So you see people like, for example, uh, Angelique Lange, who's also known as Aunt Annie or Annie Lange. Uh, her name is kind of the namesake house of this historic home uh, that I live in now. And she was born on the banks of the Saugeen River, but baptized that winter in Godridge. Um, and then they probably went back up <laughs> uh, very shortly after because they wouldn't have had access to a priest Um mm-hmm in Sogin at the time. So you can see even within a few months of one person's life, there's a lot of movement up and down the shore, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly because there's
0: different opportunities
1: afforded at each place.
0: I just want to talk about, if you don't mind, this... um You say that you live in a historic Métis house, Aunt Mm -hmm. Annie's. Can you just, I'm very interested in architecture. Can you just tell us a little bit, like, is there a specific style, architectural style to this or what defines a historic Métis house?
1: Well, there's a few different kinds, actually. So across Canada, first of all, there's a lot of different kinds of Métis architecture. Um, Everything from certain kinds of log homes to teepees to um, sod homes, but here in the lake, there's these, uh, it seems to be frequent that there's these log or lath and plaster homes. Uh, so what's really interesting about Aunt Danny's is it's built uh, with the sort of traditional sapling and, and sapling lath and plaster. So they're kind of when you hear the word lath, you think of the, you know, manufactured little mm-hmm. strips, but these are like really saplings that have been split in half. Wow So there because there's you know there wasn't a home depot back then. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's it's lath and plaster. And what's interesting is the plaster's still on there today from when it was built. And even Aunt Annie herself, she was interviewed in the 30s and she said, it. you know, it's still as good as the day they put it on and it's still there. Wow. <laughs> so it is quite, um, I'm not sure what recipe they used. It was definitely, there was a lime kiln right on the river and they would have made it using local rocks from the Niagara Escarpment um, on the western shoreline. Mm-hmm. But whatever they did, it's exceptional plaster and it's lasted for, I mean, the house is approaching, it's over 170 years old anyways. Wow. Uh, so it's a really incredible structure. And it surprisingly... Uh, It's not very well insulated, but you wouldn't know it because in the winter it's actually quite warm and in the summer it's quite cool. So there's something about the way that plaster breathes Mm -hmm. or the humidity that actually is quite good. But there's an interesting interview from um, a woman in Cape Croker who has Métis heritage up uh, in the Killarney region. And she said her mom wanted to go back to La uh, and Killarney and visit some of these spots. And she talked about the fur trading post was still kind of there. And she said that the the plaster, it was, you know, built with this plaster technique and it was it was so hard you couldn't crack it, she said. So it's obvious that that LaCloche fur trading post and some of those structures in Killarney and, mm-hmm. and LaCloche were probably quite similar. And they're basically just taking advantage of whatever materials you have around. Mm-hmm. And my uncle's told me when he's been doing some renovations historically that he's even found like pieces of driftwood and used in kind of... Parts of the wow. structure, um, kind of like used in a as a sort of impromptu. And in fact, in one of the surveyor's notes, when he, he there was a surveyor that came to Sogean or early days, and he couldn't really deal with the Métis people. And so, in, in 1870, they sent another surveyor to deal with. You know, Métis people were just referred to as squatters at the time, and that was kind of a way to be dismissive about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he sent this other surveyor, who's who was intended to sort of find a way to get rid of the Métis living down by the river. And uh, what's interesting is he he's supposed to value all the properties, and he he really is quite dismissive about the Métis structures. And we're talking like these are people's cooper shops and stuff, so their living is is out of this. And he's he's got a a little quip about he's like their fences are just made of driftwood and it's you know it's really sort of he just thought it was cruddy mm-hmm. but it's using those found materials yeah uh, and the the mouth of the saugine particularly and the mouth of the minatusung or the maitland would be similar and mm-hmm. that it's been occupied for so long there actually wasn't a lot of trees around it and you can see that on a very early maps from the 1820s when bayfield went through mm-hmm. uh, he draws it and you can see there's no trees around the river mouth so using things like sapling or driftwood would be kind of opportunistic
0: mm-hmm.
1: but there's another kind of Métis architecture it's kind of like a barn shaped house okay. it was very simple to build with very few people uh and there are three of them there is one in Southampton it's actually my great-grandfather's old house there's one in Tobermory and there's one in Michigan where one of the Métis one of the Beausolais um had left Sogin and Godrich and actually went back to Michigan and so they, there are three identical structures and they're all Métis built so it's kind of
0: neat to wow. see uh and they're all still standing so and those are the only ones that really exist in this area, then? There's nothing in
1: Yeah, involved, there were a right? few more. There was mm-hmm. another lath and plaster house beside Aunt Annie's, but mm-hmm. it was torn down and, and something, you know, a rebuild was done yeah. um, mm-hmm. many years ago. So...
0: Do... Do you have historical um, designation on the house?
1: Yeah, it actually Mm -hmm. has a, I think, a municipal one for sure and possibly Mm -hmm. a provincial one. Okay. I can't
0: recall. Wow. Um,
1: But it's interesting because it's right on the road allowance because uh, Rankin, when he came, sort of imagined he could get rid of it. And in his July version of his map, he's actually not drawn the house on at all. But then in September, he's put it back on. <laughs> I think at the time, uh, one of the launches was allowing a widow to live there who had about seven kids. And so I think probably someone said to him, you know, maybe don't kick the widow out. Mm-hmm. But ha- had it not been for her, I mean, I'm sure it would have been um, wow. removed in this time. And she yeah. actually is one of my ancestors as well, because her daughter married my Métis um, great-grandfather. So
0: Amazing. Um, you just mentioned that... Um, when we were speaking previously that Godridge was, and I quote, a place to grow the gardens. Um, What do the historical records and ancestral knowledge passed down tell you about the traditional gardens in this area? And is it still part of the Métis culture to come to Godridge in the summer?
1: Uh, Well, you know, because Métis people haven't had the opportunity to have, you know, any kind of it wasn't until 1982 Métis people were even recognized by the Canadian constitution. So our ability to kind of have relationship with different pieces of land is relinquished to whether we privately own it or it's publicly accessible. So that's, it's a little bit di- bit different in that way, but I certainly journey down as a botanist and view, mm-hmm. <laughs> view those plants. But in terms of harvest you know, we don't have accessibility mm-hmm. to that, but you can certainly see in the literature that story unfolding. So we've, I've had elders tell me about that, how they would come down to grow their grow their gardens because like i said Mm -hmm. the climate is better we have a great photograph of one of the um metis families coming to pine river to harvest medicines um so that kind of they have a teepee set up and some people all collected around there and actually they had a what they called a french tavern on the banks of the pine river as well for many years before kind of settlement took place okay um very very close to where this medicine collecting spot was and what Uh, types of medicine um, it's difficult to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, we don't have any written record of some of that. But even Aunt Annie, for example, the woman I was telling you about mm-hmm. with the house, she was a midwife. So she's listed as a, as a midwife on a lot of Métis births. Um, but she was also known to have all, a knowledge of traditional remedies. So mm-hmm. she was also someone that would have known things. And so there's some things we certainly know that the community did, you know, that we still have memory of. Things like, you know, leaving cedar boiling on the stove in the wintertime, because it helps with colds and things like that. So for COVID, I've obviously been doing that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's some other sort of medicines that are, roses are a big one. Uh, there's always been roses growing on the outside of a kind of climbing roses and different things. So we they're still there to this day. We still have several varieties of wild rose um, because it's an important tea plant, medicine mm-hmm. plant, that kind of thing. And even on the agricultural census, when you look at some of the, I think it's the 61 census, there's still Métis who who are actually growing um, some more traditional crops. So on, for example, one census, I think it's um, a Belmore or a Bellemore, he's listed as growing... Indian corn and maple sugar are his products. And so Indian corn is kind of a misnomer. All corn is from North America, mm-hmm. it's a indigenous food. Yeah. Um, but he was growing some kind of traditional corn as well as producing maple sugar on his property. Wow! And, and incidentally, maple sugar was actually a big part of the trade here. Um, we say fur trade, but it was a lot of things being traded like maple sugar, like, you know, snowshoes, manufactured goods, all kinds of, you know, different indigenous articles. Wow. And that was prior to settler's arrival
0: that was being traded.
1: Yeah, so even, there's a little um, history quip in a book about Saugeen, uh, and they said 25 ships have arrived from Manitoulin uh, filled with, you know, mccucks of maple sugar. So a mccuck is like a birch bark container, and (laughs) birch bark's very good for preserving foods. Uh, so that would have been an entirely indigenous fleet of ships that had come from Manitoulin to trade sugar at Saugeen. And and typically, I think in a year, they produce around four to 5,000 pounds of maple sugar on Manitoulin. Uh, so it was wow. obviously an extensive part of the trade. And then that was even exported to places like Montreal and and used and sold as brown sugar,
0: I think, <laughs> <laughs> into the <laughs> colonies there. So. Mm-hmm. And is it still produced... In those quantities still? Well, those quantities I don't Mm -hmm. know, but yeah, Mm -hmm. it's certainly still produced by all mm -hmm. communities all around, yeah. Absolutely. Um, You're quoted in the Saugeen Shores Hub on the importance of water to the Métis community. You said, and I quote, water is really important to our community. Our ancestors were canoe builders for the fur trade. They were voyageurs, they were sailors, they were tugboat captains, lighthouse keepers, fishermen... Coopers, our entire history, our way of life is 100% connected to the water and still is today for many of our community members. Um, I just want to dig into this for like trade reference. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me like a little bit more about it? Um, the trade on Lake Huron as because I understand Goddardge played an important role in the fur trade. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So just to kind of step back again to mm-hmm. thinking about fur trade times, um, there's a period like there's obvious fur trade taking place in the 1600s into into areas like, you know, Mackinac Island and stuff like that, into places like Detroit. Detroit was founded around 1701. So that's very early that it became kind of a hub. Um, But one of the issues is for kind of most of the 1700s, you don't see a lot of references to the area and references to things happening, but I'm sure it was. Mm -hmm. Um, There's kind of a north route and a southern route for the fur trade that goes across the continent. So the northern route kind of goes from Montreal up the Ottawa River, the French River, northern shore of Lake Huron, Sault Ste. Marie, northern shore of Superior into the west the southern route goes through the Great Lakes system. Mm -hmm. So it goes through, you know, Lakes Ontario and Erie and, you know, up the Niagara Falls and up the St. Clair and up through Detroit and up into Mackinac and and beyond, very similar to the other route. So if you can imagine that that Detroit route would have this, you know, real influence on places like Mm -hmm. Goderidge. And so I suspect... You know, because of the nature of the lake, there's kind of a long fetch in Lake Huron. The prevailing northwest wind, so and there's a lot of reefs on the on the eastern side, so it can be a little dangerous going up that coast. And so people assume everyone kind of went up the Michigan side, but the around the the thumb of the of the mitten of Michigan, it can be quite dangerous as well. Um, So I think what was happening is it depended on which kind of vessel it was. So I know a lot of canoes would have been coming down and that kind of thing. There's an interesting quote from Aunt Annie herself when she was a little girl. She said, um, I remember the voyagers coming down the peninsula in their canoes laden with furs. Uh, And she said, I could hear them singing before I saw them because, you know, they would sing, you know, to keep in time. And so, if there's canoes coming down the peninsula, they're going to places like Godrich and Detroit. I mean, where else would they be going? Mm-hmm. So that's there's this kind of interesting route that's happening there. But it was probably used by a lot of indigenous people and not well recorded. But then, by the early 1800s, uh, around 1826 for sure, there's a fellow by the name of Gooding, who's who's at Godrich, and he's sort of an active supplier of different fur traders, and they're bringing stuff in, and things are happening between Detroit and Godrich and Sarnia as well. Uh, and then um, that kind of continues on. The Canada Company shows up, that kind of thing. There's several references when the Canada Company came to Godrich or Dunlop came um, and Galt and that kind of thing that there was already like a lot of activity here. There was a lot of First Nations, Métis, French people living around the okay. area. There's one reference that says about... Um, I think apart from uh, Gooding's Gooding's Cabin, there's about 16 buildings, they said, um, and most of them being the cabins of these fur traders. And this was down on the islands of the Maitland River or the Minnetasung, mm-hmm. which also for a period was also called the Red River, incidentally. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, because, and, I, and I don't know whether that's because there was a, a, sm- a short period of time, really early days, where there was quite a few Métis around. hmm including some Métis from the West, uh, like um, Desmarais and Martel and and folks that actually have a lot of their histories, mostly in in Manitoba. They were here for this really short period of time, which is, that's never been clear to me what was going on at the time. Uh, But it's got a river with three names, but uh, (laughs) down in the, the bottom of the river mouth, there's several islands. And those have been altered by some of the industry and things like that mm-hmm. have taken place but down on those islands there was uh wild rice fields corn being grown huge stands oh, of wow. sycamore trees and then all these log cabins and that's actually on a very early canada company map, map from 1826 27 where they've drawn all that on. so that
0: would be prior to the salt mines
1: oh and... yes yeah way prior yeah okay and there's even some actual sketches of someone who visited uh around kind of tiger dunlop's time and there's images of Tiger Dunlop's cabin, like pencil sketches, mm-hmm. sketches of uh, First Nations people at their camps. There's a beautiful watercolor painting of some um First Nations people at their at their village, like a stunning painting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a neat little drawing of a, a Indigenous boy using the big. Uh, you know, those big snow hills we get at the end of mm-hmm. winter yeah. along the shoreline? They could dog sled along those. Okay. And in fact, a lot of the fur traders, especially my ancestors, they would dog sled between Saugeen and Godridge in the winter. Mm-hmm. I think because if you couldn't sail, you would dog sled. There was also a trail, a historic trail that followed oh. the shore. So there was kind of
0: three, three main ways to travel. I guess, um, so the islands were where the salt mine is today, right?
1: Uh, no, they were kind of back of that. Um, okay. they, like you can still see them when you cross the bridge, you
0: can see kind of these little, this braiding that's going on, but I think uh, it was much. Okay, so they're more inland than like if you're yeah. crossing the bridge, they're to the, to the right rather than heading towards like the lake.
1: Um, if you're crossing the bridge when you're coming, come from the north, mm-hmm. they're to the right. So they're, they're okay. t- towards yeah. the lake. Okay. Uh, if you would come into the mouth of the river, you'd you'd see them immediately. Okay. Um, but they, they've been kind of altered by mm-hmm. hardening and I think different floodplain stories, okay. you know, it's, it's a big floodplain. So yes. that's kind of changed it, but it's clear from the map, this early, early map that there was rushes and wild rice all throughout them. So it was quite marshy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would have, and then they talked about there being corn planted and all kinds of stuff. So it was, uh, I mean, with all of that, with, you know, all these cabins, all these people, all these images we have, it's mm-hmm. clear that it was very active from you know, a variety of indigenous people doing things. There's also um, three different kinds of canoes that were built at the mouth of the Maitland River uh, during this time as well. So there's a reference that they they made... The on the birch bark canoe, mm-hmm. they would make elm bark canoes, which aren't as made as far, as far north because you don't get as many elms. And they would make dugout canoes. And all of those kind of have a different purpose on the water. A dugout canoe tracks very well, stays straight for a long time. You paddle mm-hmm. it once and you just fly, you know, <laughs> 30 feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas a wigwas is, you know, that's um, beautiful for kind of maneuverability. You can take it up a river or a small lake. Uh, it's easy to repair. It's very, very light. Dugouts you didn't carry much. You kind of kept them where they were. So it, we even know that there was those multiple kinds of vessels being manufactured at the mouth of um, the Minnetasung River as well.
0: Wow. Do you know the population size that would have been there at the time?
1: Uh, It's hard to say. Mm -hmm. Like I said, they kind of give a number of cabins and um, that kind of thing. But it's it seemed like it was enough
0: to be sort of a I would consider it a village, I guess, loosely, Mm -hmm. um, if that makes sense. How many people do you count within your community, the historic Sogin Métis community today?
1: Uh so there's about uh three hundred community members mm-hmm. um it could be a little more we don't always we don't register yeah. people under a certain age, so it okay. could be higher than that, but that's sort of the approximate number and that's mostly
0: in the sogging shores area,
1: mostly or? yeah, in sogging shores and the peninsula okay um but there are some pockets of our community further south, like certainly here in Godrich as well, mm-hmm. but also in places like um erio because of the fishing people would go for fishing after the the lake trout fishing fisheries collapse Mm -hmm. and places like london and kitchener um, because there was a interesting kind of economic evolution the fur trade started to decline kind of by the 1850s it was Mm -hmm. still taking place in godrich in the 1840s and then further north even later than that Uh, but it started to sort of slow down but all of the the metis had this experience on the water they had been on the water for generations and so they became fishermen guides sailors Uh, a lot of them were boat builders and coopers because they had some carpentry skills Mm -hmm. some of them became lighthouse keepers because that involves a bit of you know boat skill as well Mm -hmm. Uh, but a lot of fishing and that fish and that carried on for many many years Uh, but during the mid uh, sort of 20th century, like around the 50s, 40s, there starts to be a collapse in some of the big fisheries because of invasive species and other issues, overfishing, things like mm-hmm. that. And so that industry kind of declined. And so a lot of folks would take to working in the factories around the area, um, which there was many of at the time, there's pottery factories, many, multiple furniture factories that mm-hmm. have been uh, sort of surviving, you know, using all the the timber industry locally. But then again, those kind of slowed and there was no longer as many factories in this region, um, but there still was in the cities. And so there's kind of um, a small little pocket
0: that had kind of migrated for that, for work basically Mm -hmm. for that purpose. And your family has a long marine heritage background, specifically on Lake Huron and in this, the area known as Lake Huron. it, you mentioned it goes back seven generations in your family. Yeah, the at, least, at least, at I least. I know there's
1: seven generations of people who've done sailing um, and then going back, there's, you'd go into voyagers and things like that, going back into the 1700s. And even um, some of my there's there's this great quote where a fellow from Southampton says, oh, my mother said, you know, no name precedes Lange. And they were the descendants of French explorers. And I remember thinking that doesn't sound very right. But I did learn later that, you know, some of the Lange French ancestry, not the indigenous side of things. But the French ancestors had been a doc. There was one that was a doctor at St. Marie among the Hurons. Uh, there was one that had been um, a couple of people who have over- overwintered at Mackinac and at Sarnia for part of the fur trade. Uh, there was one that had been one of Champlain's assistants when he explored oh, wow. um, sort of some of the Algonquin speaking nations. Uh, so that, going back to sort of some of the French militia. So. the 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 launch side does indeed have a very deep history and just like huron from a french perspective let alone Mm -hmm. from um other sort of experience so i think their experience of the water and being on it and whether you're canoeing or um sailing or in a bateau which was like a kind of rowboat uh they just would have had a lot of experience and it's kind of neat even like aunt annie's brother uh francois or frank all of our all -hmm. the names get anglicized in the records Mm -hmm. uh he was a He was a captain and a boat builder, like he built tugboats, but we have this beautiful photo of these tiny mini sailboats that he built, and he built them so that Métis could learn how to sail when they were kids. So they're just like these little miniature wooden sailboats uh, that he
0: used to build um, so, that, so uh. that he could teach that to them, so it's kind of neat. And what's your role? You're active in the marine
1: yeah, so yeah, I have well. had um, lots of experience in sort of the fisheries realm of things when I was working for Parks Canada. So um, I remember the day I got my captain's papers for work so that we could be doing that, that one of our elders said that that's a, like a spirit memory that, you know, there's this continual draw to the water, even though, the, you know, I'm not going there for fisheries, but, um, you know, yeah. same sort of reason. And we still have community members today that are
0: still fishing and actively engaged in some of that as well. Wow. And can you tell... Us a bit about the marine heritage of our waterways, because we live so close to like Lake Huron, the Menace Tongue, as it was formerly now called the Maitland, the Asable, Saugeen, as well, further north where you reside. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so the marine history is uh, really, really interesting and very, very undertold. Um, like I said, there's the multiple different canoe types. There's also multiple different canoe sizes. And these are what would have all been vessels pre-contact. There was also, you could put canoes under sail as well. And a lot of historians sort of make the impression that, oh, they, you know, that was something people copied from Europeans, but... There's no, you know, canoes have probably been used in the lakes for the better part of 10,000 years. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think someone wouldn't have thought of it before, <laughs> before the 1500s. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're these credible, diverse vessels on their own. And a lot of, um, you know, for example, during the Beaver Wars, some of the, the wars between the uh, Anishinaabeg nations and the Haudenosaunee involved naval battles. They involved canoes and things like that. So several of the, the battle sites around the peninsula are based on naval battles that would have taken place and kind of... Um, you know that Mm -hmm. via canoe uh and then very early like in the 1600s europeans tried to start having kind of their typical type of sailing vessel in the lake the most famous one being um uh, lasalle's griffin uh he built it at niagara falls and then they launched it and it sailed up and he he wasn't on it uh, during the maiden voyage for for the completion of it but it actually sunk somewhere and has been this kind of holy grail of Great Lake shipwreck hunters ever since. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, many people have thought they have found the the Griffin, uh, but it was probably designed more for ocean going than than yeah. lake going, so it just wasn't probably suitable. It's mm-hmm. a different. Uh, the Lake Huron has waves closer together than in the ocean, so you know two meter waves in Lake Huron are a big deal in the mm-hmm. ocean. That wouldn't you wouldn't even <laughs> bat an eyelash. So it's that kind of that difference they were probably getting used to. Um, and yeah. there's, and there's a lot of reefs and, you know, back then there was no coast guard and no lighthouses and no charts, exactly, yes. <laughs> so getting used to all of that. Um, and then there was these little things called Mackinac boats, which were these small, uh, typically I think they had a, a square back, you know, square stern, um, that were built on Mackinac Island, but there, later they were built in places like Collingwood. There's very similar ones called York boats that were used on Lake Winnipeg that kind of model Scottish, um, Scottish fishing vessels, kind mm-hmm. of Orkney Island fishing vessels. Um, but these little tiny boats are very similar to the kind of sailboats you'd see fishermen around Europe using small scale sailing boats. And so those were used extensively. And, and you know, there's even wrecked Mackinaws uh, throughout kind of the region. There's some oh, of wow. the older wrecks in the region, you know, dating to the 1840s and that kind of thing.
0: So are those like the wrecks that people can see? So in a lot of those ones are later. Morey?
1: Yeah, those are kind of late 19th century boats. So mm-hmm. you th- get things like, uh, The sweepstakes is a famous one, and I think it was built around 1867, maybe, uh, whereas some of these are even earlier than that. Oh, wow. But I think there was a lot of, very soon, a lot of larger vessels, like what we would call schooners, Mm -hmm. which would have two or three masts, typically two. Uh, And so those were used very extensively in the latter part of the 1800s. And even in Aunt Annie's interview, she talked about as a girl, her dad would pack up a sailboat they had that she said was about 20 feet long, I don't know what kind it would be, with everything they needed for the season, including their chickens, and they would sail to the North Shore to collect furs. And so this is, you know, they would be leaving Godrich or Saugeen, and that would have been around the 1840s and 50s. Um, But then later, many of the Métis were sailing these big double-masted schooners that were kind of more for running grain and running cargo and that kind of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that, that morphed into tugboats, which were steam-powered, and then later
0: diesel-powered. Diesel and there's, this, there's been this kind of evolution. <laughs> wow. So interesting. I'm just, this has been a fascinating chat for me. You've really shown light on a history, a chapter of history that I just didn't really even know existed. So where could listeners go to find out more about the historic Sauguin Métis?
1: Yeah, so we have a interpretive center on High Street in Southampton. Uh, it's just across from the bakery, so it's always a worthwhile field trip. <laughs> uh, we're closed right now because of the pandemic, but typically our hours are 9 to 4, Monday to Friday, Um, For most of the year, except for we're closed two weeks during the holidays. We also have an annual event called uh, the Rendezvous. And we have that at Pioneer Park in Southampton. And it's a really great event with live music and food and sort of traditional um, vendors and different things going on. And, you know, all things... Uh, hoping, pandemically hopeful, okay. uh, that'll be going on as well. And then we also have a couple of books the community has put out. Uh, one, uh, there's the Historic uh, Métis Heritage Atlas, and then there's one called Historic Sogging Métis and Its People. And those are usually available at the local libraries, as well as, um, you know, they're available for sale at our office as well.
0: And I just want to touch on the food. Is there a distinct sogging Métis food culture, dish? Well, yeah, there's
1: a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of like fur trade type food. Mm -hmm. Uh, So things like split pea soup is something our, you know, my family at least really loves to make and have. Um, And that was, it's a very calorically dense food that was typical of, you know, you can easily carry dried Mm -hmm. split peas around. So that was kind of a common one. Um, You know, there's things like um, bannock. And I, I know that they've had, there's been specific references that often the, Uh, I I can't remember what it said. It said something about the, the Métis and Manitoulin like their bannock with raisins in it or something. So that's a debate I'll have to have with them at some point, but uh, there's kind of some interesting foods like that that have fur trade roots basically. Uh Uh, But of course there's the fish. So fish was a big one. Um, In fact, uh, There's this great um, quote a neighbor gave me where he said that they used to have Aunt Annie come over uh, to cook fish for them because she was so good at it. Mm -hmm. Um, His great aunt actually still uh, she still remembers Aunt Annie because she's in her 90s now. Um, and even, you know, I was asking one of our elders about, you know, methods for cooking fish and they talked about how they would have boiled them a lot more and that would actually allow a lot of the nutrients to go into the broth as mm-hmm. opposed to now we just kind of cut out the fillet.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, my grandmother cooked a lot of liver because eating organ meats was really important as opposed to
0: muscle meats. Yeah. Uh, so some of those kind of uh, traditional foods, I guess. Yeah. Wow very interesting thank you so much for joining me in studio today and shedding a light on this chapter of our local history
1: Oh, it's been a pleasure thank you my pleasure
0: if you're keen to explore the food scene in huron county you'll want to know about tasting huron county curated food experiences delivered we do breakfast and picnic deliveries and like to think of these as a delivery from a Huron County-wide farmer's market. All deliveries are abundant and feature products produced right here in the county. But if a walking tour is more your jam, Tasting Huron County's Godridge Tasting Trail takes visitors on a half-day guided tour of the food scene while mixing in architecture and history. To find out more, visit tastinghuroncounty.ca, that's all one word, for more details. I'd like to thank the Huron Heritage Fund for their support of this podcast. If you're in Huron County, one of my favorite places to wander is the Huron County Museum and the nearby Huron Historic Jail, particularly during special events. And the museum is free for Huron County library card holders. Oh, I'd like to give a shout out to Community Futures Huron for their support of this podcast. If you're thinking of setting up shop in Huron County, I cannot say enough great things about this team. When I was in the exploration stages of creating a PR agency, event company, tasting Huron County, I wasn't exactly sure what, but I gleaned an incredible amount of information from the resourceful Community Futures team before finally settling down in Heron County once again. I'd also like to thank Clint Mackey, Andrew Bauk, Nick Vinicomb, and Mark Hussey at Faux Pop Media who produce and generously support Postcards from Heron County. Thank you so much for listening. If you're a fan of Postcards from Huron County, I would be so grateful if you would rate or review this podcast on your favorite channel or share on your social media networks. Just don't forget to tag me at Postcards from Huron County so I can be sure to thank you for helping share my love of Huron County.